Let's pray. Heavenly Father, great God, we do ask that you would be our vision. And Lord, that you would also speak to us now by your word, even by my mouth. Enable me to do this, to speak clearly and well, and transform us, Spirit, by your word. Amen. Back in 2018, my wife and I were privileged to be part of a short-term ministry trip to Kiev, Ukraine, where we participated in a softball outreach ministry. The idea was, oh, this was for kids, the idea was to develop relationships with kids by playing a sport and give them the gospel and also let their families know about a nearby evangelical church. Now, we chose softball for this outreach, not because anybody on our team was particularly good at softball, but because baseball and softball are not commonly paid played sports in Ukraine. This was an advantage to us because that meant that our outreach with this exotic American sport would be attractive to many kids. And it also meant that we would not end up looking foolish playing this sport with kids because they weren't already good at it. If we tried soccer or basketball, we'd probably get schooled. So we played softball. And naturally, since these Ukrainian youths were pretty unfamiliar with the sport, we had to teach them how to play, even down to the basic rules and techniques. And though it shouldn't have surprised me, I was nonetheless amazed at how wrongly the kids would try to practice and play the game without our instruction. Many kids didn't know how to swing the bat or even how to hold the bat. They didn't know how to throw the ball or properly catch the ball with a glove. They didn't know that you're supposed to run to the bases after hitting the ball or even that you're supposed to let go of the bat after hitting the ball. And of course, they didn't know anything about the different infield and outfield positions. After spending two weeks with us, our group of Ukrainian kids got pretty proficient at softball They weren't masters by any means, but they had learned the basics. They had a good foundation for continuing to learn, to practice, and to play. But what if we had never taken the time to teach them? What if we'd just shown up, told them why they should play the game, and then handed them the equipment and said, okay, go ahead, practice and play? What would their experience playing softball be like? Well, I'm sure a a few kids might have learned some things by trial and error. All of them would have gotten confused and frustrated at some point. Some might have injured themselves. Others might have made up rules to the game that aren't actually part of the game. In the end, the sport wouldn't be very fun to play. And most, if not all of them, would eventually quit. Now, I bring this up to you because I see a parallel between sports training and spiritual disciplines, even the spiritual discipline of prayer. After all, we've already seen Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 4-7 that we are to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. 
And that word for discipline, you might remember, is the word gymnazo in Greek. It means to discipline yourself, train yourself like an athlete does. But if somebody never trains an athlete in how to train, will he ever get good at the game? Will he ever be able to win? Will he ever be able to enjoy it? In a similar way, even if we know that we ought to pray, and even if we have a desire to pray, if no one ever teaches us how to pray, well, we will end up just as frustrated and lost as uninstructed Ukrainian kids trying to play softball. And perhaps that has been your experience with prayer. You've tried to get into a habit of prayer. You've tried to discipline yourself for prayer, but you're just plagued by that nagging feeling that you're not doing it right and that God's not listening. Or your prayers just don't seem very effective. You don't see God answering doesn't seem like he's listening, so what's the point? Or prayer has just turned into repetitive drudgery for you. You don't enjoy it. You're pretty sure God doesn't enjoy it either. So why not just quit? Well, if you feel this way, know that the problem is not really with God and not really with prayer, but with your approach. Yes, devotion to prayer will always require effort. Prayer is a spiritual discipline. Yet prayer is also a gift that's meant to bless our souls and provide what we need. So if you're not seeing the blessing of prayer in your life, that just means you're doing it wrongly. But there's good news. There's someone who can teach you how to pray rightly. And this someone is perfectly trustworthy. He is the authority, and his ways are guaranteed. Who's that? Of course, I'm talking about God. After all, if you want to learn how to pray well, what better source than the originator of prayer? And we need his instruction, because without it, we will never learn how to pray well. And where has God taught us how to pray? In his Bible. In that God-breathed authoritative word that he gave to us. And of course, that's what I want to look at with you this morning. This message is Disciplines of Grace, Prayer, Part 3, where we are looking at the how of prayer. We spent the last two weeks looking at the why of prayer. We've seen that devoted Fervent, regular prayer is a command from God to all his people. You are to be doing that. And additionally, it's how we receive our requests. It's how we enjoy worshipful fellowship with God. And it's how we realign our hearts to be in tune with his. So we've looked at the why, but today we want to look at the how. How should we pray in a way that honors God and blesses us? We can summarize biblical teaching on the how of prayer, I believe, in six main points. And those would be the six points of my sermon. I want to show you six principles from the Bible to maximize your effectiveness and enjoyment in prayer. 
Six principles from the Bible to maximize your effectiveness and enjoyment in prayer. Now you say, six? Pastor Dave, that's a pretty ambitious number considering the last two weeks you only did two-point sermons. And that's true. So we'll be moving a little more briskly today so that we can discuss all six principles and not make this an extra part. First principle I want to bring to your attention is the most foundational. Everything flows out from this. To maximize your effectiveness and enjoyment in prayer, you must, number one, pray biblically. Number one, pray biblically. And really, this is the principle to which I was already pointing us in the introduction. If you want to know how to pray and you want to know what to pray about, you need to learn from God and his Bible. He not only gives you the truth, but he even provides specific instruction, direct, explicit instruction on how to pray and gives examples. After all, let's just look at Matthew 6. Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13. This is in your pew Bibles, page 962. Matthew 6, 9 to 13. This is part of Jesus' great sermon on the mount. In the immediate context, he's just spoken about how God's people should not pray. Don't pray like the Pharisees do. Instead, Jesus says, pray like this. Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13. Pray then in this way. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I know we could do a whole sermon series just on this prayer. But rather than examining all the details right now, let's just focus on a few broad items. Let's consider what we see in this prayer broadly. Jesus, in this prayer, traditionally called the Lord's Prayer, is giving us a prescriptive model to pray. Prescriptive model for how to pray. Fundamentally, this prayer is based on the truths and promises given in the rest of the Bible. It assumes those things. And so you would need to know them to be able to pray this prayer. For example, the prayer says, Father, you pray to the Father. You have to know who the Father is. And you have to have a real relationship with him as Father. For example, also, you would need to know what it means to ask for God to provide daily bread and what that that looks like. So this prayer certainly is based on and a foundational sense, the truths and promises in the rest of the Bible. But also, this prayer exemplifies the proper attitude that one should have toward God in prayer. We see this even just in the first verse. You pray to a holy God in heaven, whose name is hallowed, and whose will and kingdom are glorious and supreme. But you also pray to your loving Father, who you know will listen And grant your requests. Finally, this prayer demonstrates, even in its short length, the key elements of prayer that should be part of our prayers as well. We see in this prayer expressed worship and desire for God and his will and his kingdom. That's verses 9 to 10. 
There are requests for the day's necessary physical and spiritual needs. That's verses 11 and 13. There's even an admission of sin and a request for forgiveness and restoration in verse 12. So if you want to know how to pray, well, God gives you direct instruction right here. Pray this, God says. Wait, do you mean with these exact words, God? Not necessarily, but certainly according to this model, with that same foundation of truth, with that same attitude, and even with those same key elements. And we know we don't have to pray these exact words because, after all, this is not the only authoritative model for prayer in the Bible. There's actually a whole book that contains 150 models for prayer. What book am I talking about? The book of Psalms. The book of Psalms. The Psalms are a collection of inspired prayer songs that are meant to instruct us in how to pray and how to praise. We can't look at all the Psalms right now, but if you ever do, you will notice that the Psalms clearly vary in form from the Lord's Prayer. But they assume that same foundation of truth, they exemplify the same proper attitude, and they even contain the same key elements as in the Lord's Prayer. In fact, if we want to summarize, generalize, when it comes to the key elements of prayer, what should be there, what should be our categories of prayer, one common and helpful acronym is the word ACTS, A-C-T-S, ACTS. You might have heard this before, but this is a good way to remember biblical prayer. The key elements of biblical prayer, each letter stands for a category of prayer that should be part of our prayers. A stands for Adoration. Tell God about himself. Tell him about his wonderful qualities. Tell him how glad you are in him. C stands for confession. Tell God about your sins. Ask him for his forgiveness. Express repentance for habits of sin that you've fallen into and are turning away from. T stands for thanksgiving. In some ways this is overlapping with adoration, but in thanksgiving, give thanks to God for who he is, what he has done, and what he will do. Also thank the Lord for answered prayer. And then S, S stands for supplication. Now that's kind of a big word, but supplication just means requests. This is where you tell God about your needs and desires and ask him for help and for provision. So Acts is a useful way to remember what to pray. But not every one of your prayers has to have every single one of these categories or go through in that order. It can, and that's helpful, but doesn't need to. Get the main point. God shows us in the Bible that these ought to characterize our prayers in total. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. So we want to make sure that we are not consistently neglecting these in our prayers and thereby make our prayers less effective and less enjoyable. Two other quick applications before we move on from this first point. First, if you want a better prayer life, you're going to need to read the Bible. You're going to need to read it regularly and consistently because the truth needs to inform your prayers. And you even see the prayer models. And the second application, consider regularly praying those model prayers in the Bible so that you can train yourself in how to pray. This is actually something I started doing while I was in seminary. And over the years, it has indeed reshaped my prayers to be more biblical. 
Now, we could just stop with this first point, pray biblically. We can all go home because anything else I'm going to say really is just a further extension of this point. If you're just following the Bible, learning the truth of the Bible, following its model, you should be good. But I'm guessing you would appreciate a little bit more explanation as to what pray biblically means, so we'll keep going. Our second point, a second principle from the Bible to maximize your effectiveness and enjoyment in prayer is number two, pray variously. Pray variously. While there is some element of repetition in the disciplined life of prayer that God calls us to, that doesn't mean that prayer should become mechanical, boring, stale, far from. Actually, following the biblical pattern of prayer means praying with a great deal of variety. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let me illustrate by briefly mentioning 10 ways to pray variously. Yes, 10 ways to pray variously. These are going to be subpoints under point two. We're going to denote them with the letters A to J. And these are going to come kind of fast. Don't have a lot of time to illustrate these. This is the lightning round, so stay with me. 10 ways to pray variously. 2A, private and corporate. Private and corporate. In the Bible, we see godly people going off by themselves to pray. But we also see them coming together to pray. There are advantages to both. Praying alone helps you be less less self-conscious in prayer, less tempted to perform before others. But praying with others helps you focus together, keep each other on track, share prayer burdens, encourage each other through what you pray. So as Christians, what should we do? We should be regularly participating in both private and corporate prayer. To be focused and arrow. Focused and arrow. Some Christians are only used to shooting up quick arrow prayers, as it were, in the middle of their other activities. God, help me with this. Oh, God, thank you for this. Or, Lord, I just remembered this. And that is fine. And that is good. That is part of praying without ceasing. We actually do see a few examples of arrow prayers in the Bible. But you know what? The biblical norm, the far greater amount of example we see in the Bible is focused prayer. That is a person or a group of people setting aside all other activities and distractions and just praying. So if you're going to be biblically devoted to prayer, you should practice both focused and arrow prayers. 2C, spoken and silent. Spoken and silent. Silent prayer is way more common today than it was in Bible times. Almost all people in the Bible, when they're praying, they pray out loud. Now, partly that's just cultural. Ancient cultures were out loud cultures. They read out loud, they prayed out loud, sometimes even thought out loud. Ours is less so. So it's partly cultural, but also praying aloud has a great advantage. It's a great way to focus on praying and to remind yourself that you are talking to a real person. Many Christians today have found that simply praying out loud has done wonders for their prayer life. Now, silent prayer can sometimes be strategically necessary or just helpful when you're feeling emotionally overwhelmed. 
but we want to make sure that we use both spoken and silent prayers in our lives. And whispered prayers are fine, too. 2D, prepared and extemporaneous. Prepared and extemporaneous. You may have a certain preference when it comes to prayer. You prefer something written beforehand or something composed on the spot. But you know what? Both actually appear in the Bible, and both are good. Extemporaneous prayers, they encourage honesty, sincerity, a lack of posturing. But prepared prayers are also good because they encourage carefulness, precision, cogency, and making sure that what you pray is biblical. When spoken from the heart, both kinds of prayers glorify God, so we should practice both. 2E, physical and spiritual. Physical and spiritual. When it comes to prayer requests, some find themselves only concerned with physical and circumstantial needs. But others feel like to pray for anything physical is shallow, ungodly. I'm only going to pray for spiritual things. But here again, if we just look at the example of the Bible, what do we see? We see both. We see prayer requests for both. So that means that we should pray both. In your physical request, don't forget the spiritual. And in your spiritual request, don't forget the physical. 2F, yourself and others. Yourself and others. If you've come to know yourself in the Bible at all, you know that you, you personally, need prayer. You need God, you need God's wisdom, you need his physical and spiritual provision, but you're not the only one. In fact, God has called you directly in the Bible to pray for others, especially for your brethren. So be sure in your prayers not only to pray for yourself, but to pray for others too. 2G, short and long, short and long. One of the most remarkable aspects of the Lord's Prayer that we just read a few moments ago is its brevity. It's a short prayer. You could pray that prayer in less than a minute. And Jesus says, this is how you should pray. And this is in great contrast to what Jesus was just talking before about in that passage. The Pharisees who use long prayers thinking that for their many words they're going to be heard. We can fall into that same same trap. Longer prayers equals more effective. That's not necessarily so. A short prayer, if spoken sincerely and with reverence, can be just as effective as a long one. Of course, there is a place for long prayers too. We see that in the Psalms, looking at Psalm 119 in particular. But the biblical model, the biblical instruction is that we use a variety of lengths in our prayers to God. 2H, different emphases, different emphases. Something notable about the Psalms is how some of them major on certain category of prayer. Some Psalms are mostly praise and thanks. Some Psalms are mostly confession and lament. And other Psalms are mostly petition. This is fine. Biblical prayers can have these major emphases. And so can ours. Don't feel like that because you haven't given equal time in your prayer to adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, that somehow that prayer is no good. Forget it. God didn't hear it. No. You can use, and you should use, a variety of emphases in your prayers to God. 
to I, different times, different times. The Bible does not prescribe set times for prayer, but it shows God's people using a variety of times for prayer. Many Jews prayed at three set times each day, along with the morning and evening sacrifice and also around noon. But of course, they and others in the Bible also prayed in impromptu times and just in reaction to different events. This is a good example for us to follow, both set times that are helpful for us, doable for us, and also impromptu times. Many Christians have found prayer in the morning to be especially helpful for setting one's heart for the day. I would commend that. But regardless, be prepared in your prayer life to pray according to set regular times and also as there is additional need. Finally, 2J, different postures. Different postures. It may surprise you to hear that our traditional American prayer posture of kneeling with a bowed head, closed eyes, folded hands, is not actually found in the Bible. Or at least, not exactly. If you do an overview of the different prayer positions or postures found in the Bible, you will see people kneeling, people standing, people sitting, people lying down, People with their hands raised, people with their hands down, people with their eyes raised, people with their eyes down. There's a variety of postures. Now, is there a special power in a particular prayer posture? No, of course not. God's not going to pay attention to external things like that. So what's the point? Your posture is simply supposed to express your heart, help you stay focused, and hopefully not distract other people. So, moral of the story Use a variety of postures in your prayers. And that was all ten. Ten ways to pray variously. There is a biblical way to pray. We just saw that in point one. But that biblical way contains within it a lot of variety. So pray variously. Now, though, even though there is a lot of freedom and a certain amount of commanded variety in biblical prayer, there are other biblical principles that should apply no matter when or how or what particular variety you are praying. And those are the other four principles I'd like us to look at. A third biblical principle for maximizing your enjoyment and effectiveness in prayer is number three, pray reverently. Pray reverently. And for this... Please turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2. Ecclesiastes 5, 2. This is page 673, if you're using the Pew Bible. It wasn't too long ago that we were studying Ecclesiastes together. You might remember that Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 7 is a section of practical reminder of what living in the fear of God means. It affects your worship. It means not making rash vows before God and not failing to fulfill the vows that you make. But it also means you are to have a certain approach when you speak to God in prayer or in praise. And this is what we read in Ecclesiastes 5.2. Look at that with me. Ecclesiastes 5.2. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven, and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. 
We Christians must always be on guard of becoming too casual with God, especially in prayer. It's true that if you believe in Jesus, you have been saved once and for all in him and brought into the very throne room of grace. But that amazing gift, it should never cause you, it should never cause us to start taking God and his holiness or his power for granted. Nor should it cause us to become flippant, unthinking, or merely prattling to God when we pray. Such will not please God, and it will make our prayers ineffective and unenjoyable. But someone will say, Pastor Dave, this is Old Testament. We're in the New Testament era now, right? Don't we cry, Abba, Father? Even as was said earlier in our service. We do indeed cry, Abba, Father, Romans 8.15. And praise the Lord for that wonder. But let's remember what that means. Abba is not a casual term. It does not really equate to daddy, as is sometimes claimed. Really, it's Aramaic for my father, which is a name, a title with great intimacy and affection. Children would call their fathers Abba, but it's also a name or title with deep respect. Salvation in Christ should never cause us to lose that holy reverence for God that God so desires to inculcate, to imprint in us in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. After all, just going back to the Lord's Prayer, how does it begin again? Our Father who is in heaven, who is high above in heaven, hallowed or honored and made holy be your name. That was the model Jesus gave us for prayer. Solomon's not saying anything different here in Ecclesiastes 5.2. Rather, our author Solomon tells us, when you pray to God, remember who he is and remember who you are and appreciate the contrast. He is in heaven, dwelling in inapproachable light, surrounded in glory. You are on the earth, in the dust, of the dust. Therefore, let your words be few. Which is not a prohibition against long prayers, but it is a warning against unrestrained, unthinking, foolish words in prayer. So practical application. You would be wise to take time before you pray, and even in your prayer, simply to remember who it is you're talking to. Remember who God is so that you regard him rightly in your heart and you speak to him rightly with your mouth. Remember, too, it's not just that God is exalted and glorious and we are low, but that he is righteous and we are sinful. Again, yes, according to the glorious gospel, We who believe in Jesus are clothed in his own righteousness. We are forever justified, forever made clean positionally before God. But that doesn't mean we forget what we once were and what we still are many times 
practically in our lives. Our attitude to God in prayer ought to resemble what Jesus tells us about in Luke 18, verses 13 to 14. This is the repentant tax collector and the story Jesus tells there. Luke 18, verses 13 to 14, Jesus says, But the tax collector, standing some distance away, that is, some distance away from the Pharisee, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And that is the worst sinner, the sinner par excellence. And what did Jesus say was God's response to such a prayer? Verse 14, I tell you, this man went to his home justified rather than the other, the self-righteous Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Brethren, even though we should come to God boldly in prayer, and I'm just about to talk about that, we must also come humbly, reverently, gratefully, because we remember who God is. We remember his greatness, his holiness, and remember we remember who we are. When we pray to God in holy fear and an affectionate reverence that is the beginning of wisdom, according to Proverbs, God will be pleased. God will hear. And our souls will prosper. Let us beware coming to God casually, insincerely, even hypocritically, lest we fall under the same judgment and discipline that Israel fell under, according to Isaiah 29. Isaiah 29, verses 13 and 14. This is quoted in the New Testament. Isaiah 29, 13 and 14. Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote, Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning discerning men will be concealed, which is to say, I'm going to confound them with judgment. If you want to pray to God rightly and well, pray reverently. there's a parallel truth which we've already introduced even as we pray humbly and reverently to our holy god in heaven we must also number four pray boldly pray boldly to show you this turn to ephesians chapter 3 ephesians 3 verses 11 to 12 pew bible page 1171 ephesians 3 11 and 12 Remember that Ephesians is Paul's letter to new Gentile believers in Ephesus. He's writing to explain to them the amazing salvation inheritance that they have by faith in Jesus and how this salvation should cause them to live worthy lives, holy lives. And in chapter 3, verses 1 to 13 specifically, Paul is explaining to the Ephesians that they should not be disheartened that he's in prison even in prison because he was preaching to Gentiles like them, because Paul regards such as a privilege. He's glad to do it. And near the end of explaining why he's glad to suffer to see Gentiles receive salvation, Paul says in our two verses, Ephesians 3, 11 and 12, 
This, that is, this making known of God's wisdom in salvation to the whole universe, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Now, for the sake of our discussion on prayer, I'm just going to focus on verse 12 here. Notice that Paul says that through faith in Christ, we believers have boldness and confident access. Access to what? Or whom? Well, in context, to God and to full salvation blessing, full salvation inheritance. And this is for Jews and Gentiles, both the same. And the words for boldness and confidence here, notice, they're actually pretty similar in meaning. Just look up the Greek word for boldness. An alternate translation is the word confident. Confidence. So Paul is doubly emphasizing how confident we can be that we have been brought near to God. So what's one implication from that? It's not directly stated here, but certainly it is true. We can come boldly to God in prayer. We ought to come boldly and confidently. And why? Because we know he's our God. Even our Father who loves us, will listen to us, and will grant our requests. And again, we heard this at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, didn't we? It begins with our Father. Our Father who is in heaven. Yes, but our Father. He's my Father. He's going to act like a Father. He's going to Be loving towards me. He's going to take care of me. Those who are adopted by the Father in Christ, they can come to their Father in prayer knowing that he's eager to listen to them and grant their requests. Children should be able to come confidently to a loving Father. And didn't we already see this in our previous sermons on prayer, even from Jesus' own teaching? Matthew seven eleven, Matthew seven eleven. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? He will give because he's your Father and loves you. John sixteen, John sixteen twenty six and twenty seven. Jesus again speaking. In that day, you will ask in my name. I do not say that I will request the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and that believe that I came forth from the Father. And we might as well add the other verse that we mentioned earlier, Romans 8.15. Romans 8.15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So brethren, according to the scriptures, we can come to God in prayer boldly, confidently, expectantly, trusting that the Father loves us, he will hear us, and he will grant us the good things for which we ask. This is why we can come to God in faith. And even when we're suffering in situations that don't seem right, If our Father really loves us, we bring that to God too. Saying as it were, my Father 
I know that you love me. So why are you hurting me right now? Even so, I know you have a good answer and will make things right. You see, we are to come to God with both reverence and boldness. These don't contradict each other. They complement each other, and they inform biblical prayer. He's commanded us to come this way, and he's honored when we come this way. You know, I've heard some people make an excuse when it comes to prayer. Something like, oh, I don't pray because I know God's busy and he doesn't have time for little old me. Or, I don't pray because God's not going to want to listen to my prayers. He's holy and I'm sinful. Those may sound like pious, reverential statements, but they're actually not. These are actually like Ahaz, when he said hypocritically to the prophet Isaiah, I will not ask for a sign nor test the Lord. That's Isaiah 7.12, when God commanded him to ask for a sign. Or like the unfaithful slave in the parable of the talents who told his master, I'm just paraphrasing here, I knew you to be a hard and unscrupulous man. I was afraid of failing you, so I didn't even try. That's Matthew 25, 24. Saying that you're too afraid to pray to a righteous God, that doesn't honor him. That's proud unbelief that is impugning his character. If you really believe God to be who he says to be, you know that he's not only holy and righteous, but that he is merciful. And that as a father, he wants his people to come and pray. So if you really want to honor him, you take him at his word. You come to him in faith and repentance, and you receive from him salvation. And also you enjoy worship, petition, and prayer. You must come reverently to God in prayer, yes, because you need to remember who he is. But you also must come boldly to God in prayer because you need to remember who he is. I know some of you may struggle with that last point because you say to yourself, I have come boldly to God in prayer. I've come in faith. I've asked him to provide for needs just as he's promised, but he still hasn't done it. I've come more than once. I've come over many days and months and years, but I still haven't received an answer. What gives? Does God not love me? Is he going to be faithful to everybody else except me? Well, may it never be. If that's you, or if that has been you, I can't say exactly what God is doing, why he hasn't answered that particular prayer. But I do know this. A fifth biblical principle for maximizing effectiveness and enjoyment in prayer is number five, pray Persistently. Pray persistently. God has his own wise reasons for sometimes not giving you that good thing for which you ask. He doesn't have to explain himself. We know that it wouldn't be good if he gave it to you. He has a good reason for withholding it. He doesn't have to tell you how exactly. But he's also called you as his beloved child to keep coming to him in prayer 
until you receive what you ask. Jesus taught this principle explicitly in at least two places, both in Luke, Luke 11, verses 5 to 8, and Luke 18, 1 to 8. For the sake of time, we'll just look at the second passage. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke 18, Luke 18, 1 to 8. This is Pew Bible 1046. Luke 18, 1 to 8, this is the parable of the unjust judge. Jesus tells this parable right after teaching about his second coming to his disciples and right before telling the story about that proud Pharisee and the repentant tax collector whose prayers so contrasted. Let's read the entire parable, Luke 18, 1 to 8. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, in a certain city, There was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection from my opponents. For a while, he was unwilling. But afterward, he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Consider this parable. Why is it that the widow finally receives the legal protection that she is due? It's not because the judge is a good guy. No, but because the widow wears him out by her persistence. Now, is God saying he's like this unrighteous judge? Far from. This is one of those things where how much more so is the point. If even an evil judge will give someone justice just because of simple bothersome persistence, how much more will a good God provide loving justice and answer to prayer to those who persist in bringing their good requests to him? If even an evil judge will do it, how much more God? God will not ignore the cries of his own, nor will he delay at all in bringing about what is good. He will bring it about as quickly as possible in accordance with his perfect plan. And the application of this parable is given us right to, right to us in verse 1. Recognizing that we have such a loving and just God should cause us not to lose heart, but to persist in prayer, even through long difficulty. Persisting this way in prayer, by faith, it glorifies God. Because what are you testifying when you pray in that way? God is worthy to be trusted, worthy to be sought, persistently, never quitting. He's that kind of God. 
But notice the way Jesus ends the parable in verse 8. He ends with a question related to eschatology. When Jesus comes, and God's people have had to persist in faith-filled prayer for months, years, decades, centuries, waiting for the justice of God, waiting for the ultimate answer to prayer, Jesus asks, will there be anyone left who still has faith? What's the implication? I'd say it's this. God is ready to reward God-glorifying, persistent prayer. But is anyone brave enough, persevering enough, faith-filled enough to take him up on that offer? We have to confess that we Christians are often not very good at waiting in faith. If God takes more than a week, a month, or a year to answer our prayer, we give up. Uh, if we would only learn to persist in prayer as Jesus teaches us here. If we would learn not to give up, but to keep coming to God, saying, I believe you, so I'm going to keep coming. You know what God says? I'll reward your persistence. I'll answer your prayer. It may not look like God will ever do it, but he says he will. We, of course, need to be ready for God's will to be different from our own. Praying like Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. But if we're praying for something truly good, even something that he taught us to pray, then we should not give up. We should keep praying. Like the widow saying, give me what I ask. I'm do this. You promise this. Give it to me because I believe you. You know what? The Bible and Christian history and even many people in this church can testify that even after long times of waiting and praying, even when it seemed like there's no possibility it could be answered anymore, you know what God did? He answered prayer. God loves, because it particularly glorifies him, God loves to reward prayer that hangs on even to the last moment. So you know what we should do? We should pray persistently. And we come now to our final principle. We've seen so far that, according to the Bible, if we want to maximize our effectiveness and enjoyment in prayer, we must, number one, pray biblically. Learn the Bible and follow its models for prayer. Pray, or number two, pray variously. Recognize the enjoyable freedom and variety that should exist in your prayers. Number three, pray reverently. Remember the exalted holiness of God and pray to him accordingly. Number four, pray boldly. Remember the love of God and the salvation work of Christ and pray accordingly. Number five, we just saw pray persistently. Keep praying in faith until you see God keep his promises to you. And now finally, number six, pray innocently. Pray innocently. And by pray innocently, I do not mean that you must be perfectly righteous before you pray in order to pray to God. practically in your life. For that has never been possible for any man except our Lord Jesus. 
We have access to God, even as we read from other scriptures, not based on our own practical perfection, our record of righteousness, but by believing in Jesus and his perfect life and substitutionary death on our behalf. Jesus is the one who has secured for us once and for all salvation and full access to God. So that's not what I mean by pray innocently. Instead, I mean this, and a truth that applies both to unbelievers and believers. If we are walking in unrepentant sin, if we have not truly turned from our own evil way, our idols, sinful thoughts, words, or actions, then God will not hear our prayers. If we live in sin, our prayers will be wholly ineffective and totally unenjoyable. And God tells us this directly in one of his model prayers. Turn to our last passage, Psalm 66. This is Pew Bible, page 588. Psalm 66, verse 18. Psalm 66 is a psalm with a praise emphasis. It's a psalm of praise for answered prayer, even for deliverance from enemies. And toward the end of the psalm, the psalmist testifies that he has prayed to God innocently. Not with perfection, but without known without dominating sin in his life, without a heart divided between God and something else. He comes to God with a clean heart because he notes, he notes a certain truth, a certain principle that would otherwise make praying amid sin useless. That's what he says in Psalm 66, 18. Look what it says there. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Sin in your life and in your heart, it blocks God from hearing you pray. Not in the sense that God doesn't actually know what you say, but rather, out of his holy discipline, he chooses not to regard what you say. You see, disobedience is like a jammer that prevents your prayers for good things from going through. Why? Our good God is too good, too loving, to pretend that everything in your relationship is all right and just reward hypocrisy. He's not going to do that. He's a good father. So consider, brethren, could this be the reason why some of your prayers are not answered? Are you yet regarding iniquity in your own heart? Do you come to God confessing sin, expressing your desire to turn away from it, but you never do so? You continue to allow that sin to dominate your life. If so, Friend, I've got to tell you from the Bible, you're deceiving yourself. You don't really want to get rid of that sin. That's fake repentance. And the resultant prayers are just prattle before God. You will not regard such prayers. To get more specific and to bring in some other scriptures, 
Is unforgiveness, a bitter heart, and a refusal to pursue reconciliation with another person in which, with whom you have conflict, is that a jammer to your prayer? Because listen to Mark 11.25. Mark 11.25. Jesus teaches, Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Unforgiveness will block your prayers. What about mistreatment? Mistreatment towards your spouse. Is that jamming your prayers? Because listen to 1 Peter 3, 7. 1 Peter 3, 7. Particular exhortation to husbands. It is Father's Day after all. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. One more example. Are your covetous desires, the ones that manifest in your angry conflicts with other people, are they jamming your prayers? Because James says, in James 4, verses 2 and 3, we've seen these before. James 4, 2 to 3. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. When we come to God with this iniquity in our hearts, God will not hear. That could be a real dampener on your prayer life. I can understand you not wanting to pray. In fact, maybe you're at the point where you don't pray anymore has actually unrepentant sin caused you to give up on prayer. I can understand why. You can't enjoy fellowship. You can't see answered prayer when you're living in sin. Have you stopped praying because of sin? You know, I said to you before when we were talking about the discipline of the Bible, as many others have said, the Bible will keep you away from sin, and sin will keep you away from the Bible. Same thing is true of prayer. Prayer will keep you away from sin. But sin will keep you away from prayer. If you're struggling with prayer, sometimes the issue is much more basic. Are you continuing to live in sin? You've got to deal with that first. And don't say, well, I guess I'll just give up on prayer. And I'll just continue in sin. No, that is the way to death. That is the fool's way that God constantly exhorts you in the Bible not to take. Rather, what is the wise way? It is to repent. Repent and believe the gospel for the first time if necessary or again if necessary. God is life. He is your true treasure. Not anything in the world and certainly not any sin. No sin is worth giving up God, a loving relationship with him, and the ability to come in prayer towards him so give up your sin and turn back to God, letting, up, letting go of whatever is keeping you away from him, whatever is dishonoring him. Give that up, turn back to God, and then enjoy prayer with him. Now, perhaps the sin that you might need to repent of today is prayerlessness. 
After all, we've examined that this is a command from God. Be devoted to prayer. Are you saying, I don't want to do that. I don't have time for that. Maybe that's the thing you need to repent of. But again, it's for your good. So that you can enjoy the fellowship, the obedience, the answered prayer, and the realigned heart. Do you need to repent of prayerlessness today? I told you before, it's my prayer and my hope that this month, June, will be a transformative month for our church. That we, all of us, might truly embrace what God has meant for us, which is a life of devotion, disciplined devotion to God in prayer. So what do you need to change in your life to make that happen? Whatever it is, do it, because you know what the result will be? It will be blessing. It will be blessing in your life and blessing in this church. Imagine if all of us here come to God in prayer the way he's told us to. What will be the result? We, together, will behold the glory of God and we will see him work mightily in our church and through our church. And isn't that what we want as Christians? If so, then let's discipline ourselves for godliness, even specifically for the purpose of prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, we need to confess again our prayerlessness before you. Lord, thank you that we have grown. We're not where we used to be, even when it comes to prayer. You have enabled us to pray. You have put faith in us enough so that we could come and pray. And yet, God, I think many of us, collectively all of us, can acknowledge we don't pray like we ought. And we have every reason to come. You've even shown us how. So, God, thank you for your forgiveness. But let's no longer walk the way we're going. We have been. Lord, let us come to you in prayer. Let us discipline ourselves for prayer. God, do that work in us. We know our responsibility, God, but we ask you because you're a God who answers prayer, even a prayer to help us pray. God, we want to behold your glory just as Moses prayed. We want to see you at work. We want to see souls saved. We want to see your people sanctified. We want to see your people joyful in knowing you and following after you. And we know that prayer is such a central part of that. So help us, God. Help this people. Help anyone who's listening today to turn from sin, to turn from distractions, to turn from false treasures, whatever it is, Lord, that's keeping us from you, keeping us from prayer. And help us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.